Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Oh, man. Look here. Look. Look. Look down here, exclaimed the ghost. They were a boy and girl. Yellow, meager, ragged, scowling, wolfish. That's why it's not just a simplistic message about let's all be nice to each other at Christmas. It's, it's a, a message about the whole way society works. In Dickens's time, this was a meat and poultry market. So, yeah. you know, at the end of the Christmas Carol, when Scrooge sends the boy to get the prized turkey oh, at the yes, poultry, yes, I think yes. it was almost certainly a being <coughs> in Leadenhall Market. Right, where we're right, right, right. Marley was dead to begin with. That's the first sentence of A Christmas Carol in Prose, being a ghost story of Christmas by Charles Dickens, which was first published 180 years ago by Chapman and Hall on the 19th of December, 1843, as a small, hardback volume with salmon brown covers and gold lettering, gilt page edges and coloured plates by the punch illustrator John Leach. It cost five shillings, not a small amount, in fact that's a third of Bob Cratchit's weekly salary, but it became an instant bestseller. The first edition had sold out by Christmas Eve, and on Christmas Day alone it sold 6,000 copies. By the end of the following year, 13 editions had been released. Since then, it has spawned hundreds of adaptations for the theatre, the cinema, television, opera, ballet, graphic novels and video games. Ebenezer Scrooge is perhaps the best known of all Dickens' characters. The book was responsible for popularising the phrases Bar Humbug and Merry Christmas. And in 1985, the word Scrooge was added to the Oxford English Dictionary. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and in this episode I'm going to stamp through the bitingly cold, snowy streets of Victorian London in the company of Ebenezer Scrooge and a collection of remarkable spirits. But first, let's introduce the guest for today's episode. I'm sitting with the actor, director and author Simon Callow. Simon, welcome. Thanks, Henry. Simon is perhaps best known for his performances in Four Weddings and a Funeral and Shakespeare in Love, and for his many starring roles on stage, as Mozart in the first production of Peter Schaffer's Amadeus, for example, 
and as Pozzo in the 2009 production of Waiting for Godot, alongside Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen. Simon has also appeared many times as Charles Dickens in reconstructions of Dickens's public readings, in the one-man play The Mystery of Charles Dickens, written by Peter Ackroyd, in a solo performance of A Christmas Carol, which was filmed by the BBC in 2018, and in two episodes of Doctor Who. In 2012, Simon published a biography of Dickens called Charles Dickens and the Great Theatre of the World. Simon, it's a real privilege to be talking to you today. Lovely. Thank, <laughs> Thank you, you for lovely. joining us. In, in your biography, you say that your relationship to the great man is a little different from anyone else's. I wonder if we could start by my asking, how did that relationship begin and, and what has it been like? Well, it began in the way that a relationship with Dickens begins for many. I saw A Christmas Carol when I was seven in a theatre in Croydon, a theatre in the round. And uh, it was very bare, this production, not sumptuous, not not full of uh, wonderful scenery and so on. And I have to tell you, it scared the hell out of me at seven. I found it very, very frightening, this terrifying old man facing death and all the rest of it. Yes. So I steered well clear of Dickens for some years after that. Um, but then I got, uh, when I was 13 or something like that, mm. I got chicken pox. Mm -hmm. Terrible, terrible. But my dear grandmother, who, French grandmother as it happens, who was a great, great lover of Dickens, placed a copy of the Pickwick Papers in my hands and then I never scratched again. <laughs> It was just, uh, I was just completely immersed in that unbelievably exuberant world. And so th then I, I was now in love with Dickens, and I started reading Dickens in the way that everybody else does, working my way through the books. Then when I became an actor, one of the very first jobs I did was in A Christmas Carol again. And not only, I was playing about 27 parts, the way you, you do in repertory. And uh, uh, then one terrible day, the... Um, director met me at the stage door of the theatre and said, um, I'm afraid you're going to have to go on a Scrooge tonight. And I said, I wasn't an understudy or anything. I mean, there weren't any understudies. There were only about 10 of us playing a thousand parts. Oh and so goodness. she said, look at all those children over there. Are you going to disappoint those children? And I said, yes, I am. But anyway, it was quite clear. The show had to go on. So I did go on. She pushed me around the stage. Anyway, we got through it somehow. <laughs> so I would describe myself as someone who was absolutely in love with Dickens's work. He deeply appealed to mm. me. The generosity, the quirkiness, the, um, the warm heart, mm. as it seemed to me, at the centre of it all, and the passion for social justice and all these things that we, we love about Dickens. But um, I, I was taken aback when I was asked by someone from the BBC uh, if I'd like to reconstruct Dickens's reading tours. Mm. And to my sort of embarrassment, I didn't know that Dickens had done reading tours. Right. In fact, I didn't really know all that much about Dickens. I'd, I'd really relied on, on the books. Uh -huh. That was what I knew about Dickens. Whereas, of course, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years of his life, these hugely popular public readings of sections from the books were almost as important to him as the writing, weren't they? He, he they became the an world. addiction, and there's yeah. a good argument to say they killed him mm. because they were incredibly demanding. But Dickens transformed the genre uh, because he was fascinated by the theatre from infancy mm -hmm. and uh, was a born performer. And almost attempted to become an actor at one stage, didn't he? He, he did, considered indeed. It. Well, Simon, we're meeting this morning in a, in a pub called The Counting House, rather appropriately, mm -hmm. in the middle of the city of London on Cornhill. This is actually a former 
bank which was kitted out like this in um, the late 19th century. So you can it sort of feel suitably uh, Victorian and uh, a good starting point for our walk today. Yes. But let's, let's focus now on A Christmas Carol and on that central figure who is so familiar, Ebenezer Scrooge. As I said in my introduction, he's almost certainly the best known of all Dickens's mm. characters. How, Simon, would you introduce Scrooge to someone who hadn't met him before? Well, you'd say that this is a cold, scornful, isolated loner, obsessed by the making of money and devoted entirely to that objective. A man without a, a, a scintilla of human sympathy in his body. I mean, Dickens describes him rather better than I've just done, of course, with all those wonderful string of adjectives, almost at the beginning of the book. Well, in fact, Simon, would you mind reading out that? <laughs> yes, of that course. little yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yes, yes. passage, it's so good. Yes. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge. Squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, and as solitary as an oyster. Wonderful. Thank you, Simon. That solitary as an oyster is it's such wonderful, a isn't brilliant it? finale yeah, to that list, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And Michael um, Slater, one of the great biographers Gr of Dickens. Great, greatest, one of the greatest. He points out that the name Scrooge is so... I mean, all Dickens' names are well chosen, yeah. but he points out that it's a kind of combination of screw and gouge. There's something really, yeah. almost like a sort of thumb pressing into someone's eye with that name. Yes, it? it's true. Um, there's so many accounts of where Dickens might have got the name from, and of course he obsessed about names. Mm. He used to draw up lists of yes. names for his characters, and when he hit on the name, then he hit on the characters as well. I've heard that. And, and you know, in as you were describing his theatricality and, and performing the different roles, he would perform his characters to the mirror, wouldn't he, and kind of inhabit yes. a character that once he had the That was extraordinary. His daughter saw him do it. She described it so brilliantly that he'd literally, when, when the character was with him, almost like a method actor or something, mm. once the, he would, felt the character coursing through his veins, he'd get up and look at himself in the mirror and see how this sensation had changed his face and then wrote it down and, and then uh, it became part of the, the description of the character, which is a, quite remarkable. I've yes. never heard of anybody else, but it does underlines what, of course, is the great point of my book about Dickens, is his essential theatricality. Mm. And uh, Dickens was absolutely uh, taken over by his characters when he was writing them. Now we've introduced the character of... Scrooge. Yeah. Let's head out into the city of London and explore some of the locations from A Christmas Carol. Okay. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy with all, and he could hear the people in the court outside go wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts and stamping their feet upon the pavement stones to warm them. The city clocks had only just gone three, but it was quite dark already. It had not been light all day, and candles were flaring in the windows of the neighbouring offices, like ruddy smears upon the palpable brown air. The fog came pouring in at every chink and keyhole, and was so dense without 
that although the court was of the narrowest, the houses opposite were mere phantoms. So we've just stepped out onto Corn Hill, which is one of the main streets running through the city of London. And we don't know exactly where Dickens imagined the, uh, the warehouse and office where Ebenezer Scrooge worked. Yeah. But we do have some clues. We know that it's near Corn Hill. Yeah. And we know that when he's sitting at his desk, he can look out through his window and see uh, the ancient tower of a church yeah. with a gruff old bell peeping slyly down through a Gothic window. Yeah. And we're looking up there at St. Michael's on Corn Hill, which yes. does have Gothic windows. It, you know, it might have been a court quite near yes, to where yes, we're standing now. Likely, yeah. um, so we're going to go into this little court, which still survives, called Sun Court. And we can imagine that that is perhaps where Scrooge might have worked. So we've just walked into Sun Court, which, <laughs> as you say, Simon, is not very sunny. It's rather small <laughs> and cramped, um, but rather appropriately for uh, the book we're talking about today. Yep. And this reminds me of that um, moment at the beginning of A Christmas Carol when a, a little cold young boy comes up to sing A Christmas Carol through the keyhole of, yeah. of Scrooge's door and he threatens him with a ruler and chases him away. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it's, it's, he sings a version of God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, doesn't he? And yes. That's the only Christmas Carol in A Christmas Carol, yeah. is that, <laughs> that little moment. But that um, title is so familiar, A Christmas Carol, but it's funny to sort of look at it afresh and think, yes, actually, this A Christmas Carol in prose, this whole work is a kind of celebration and an and a evocation of Christmas as a season. And I wondered, Simon, what, in 1843, when Dickens was writing this, what would Christmas have been like? I think you have to see this in the context of the Industrial Revolution and the feeling of alienation uh, of so many town dwellers, deprived of the traditions, uh, the customs. Uh, it was to do with people getting together, families getting together, mm -hmm. and having a, a lot to eat and a lot to drink and dancing and laughing and, and sitting around the fire. Uh, and there had been, hadn't there, this kind of movement in the early 19th century towards a, a kind of renaissance of those older Christmas traditions in Britain and America. Um, yeah, it's part of that sort of Oxford movement of, of going back to older forms of church celebration. Yes. This is one of Dickens's great themes, that his whole, the whole purpose of his entire output, you might say, is towards a reintegration mm. of a society which is alienated from itself. Mm -hmm. And this was, you know, acutely felt uh, mm. uh, around this period. So the, the revival of Christmas was uh, a revival of the medieval idea. Right. But the medieval idea, romanticized re medieval idea, was of, of, a, of a society in which everyone had a place and felt looked after. Yes, a sort of feudal, for. you know, yeah. celebrations in the Baron's Hall with all the all servants there. Exactly. And, and um, of course, one of the first times that Dickens writes about Christmas is in that wonderful chapter from a Pickwick Papers, which he calls a, a good-humoured Christmas chapter, yep. which kind of yep. harks back to that sort of country, rural Christmas. Yes. There's a big hall decked with yes. um, I mean, greenery. It's more and, bourgeois than, yeah. than the medieval fantasy. So I, I think it's a, a completely erroneous notion that Dickens invented Christmas. This right. is absolute yes. nonsense. It, 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 it has deep, 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 deep roots. 
uh, in our culture. And it's an interesting fact that almost always, uh, for as long as we have records, people have been lamenting the, uh, <laughs> that Christmas isn't what it was. Right. But I suppose Dickens had the the luck or, or you know, the canniness to notice that he was writing at a time that certain of our current Christmas traditions were being fixed. So, for instance, writing in 1843, that was the year the first Christmas card yeah. was sent. And, yes. and Christmas crackers came along in 1847. And the Christmas tree had just been popularised in 1841, just before. So these That's new awesome. traditions yeah. were being added to the, the, you know, the older medieval tradition. Yeah. And as you say, Dickens did not invent Christmas, but there's something about his presentation of Christmas which has become fixed in the yes, but culture. Yes, the, the, the great, uh, you know, one of the many strokes of genius of Christmas Carol is that it presents many different Christmases. In fact, that's the whole point of the spirit of Christmas present is he takes Scrooge around the whole yes, world right. and shows him how everywhere people know how to celebrate. He's mm. the only person who has hardened his heart against mm-hmm. the idea of Christmas. Mm-hmm. Even in lighthouses, even mm. at sea, there are that Christmas is celebrated, but not by Ebenezer Scrooge. Absolutely. And that seems to be, you know, that's what works so well at the centre of this story, that having this character who's such a misanthrope, who's such, you know, it's really cruel at the beginning when he says, um, you know, about the poor, that if they can't go to workhouses, if they would rather die than go to workhouses, then they'd better do it and decrease a surplus population. It's yeah. just it's chilling, well, you isn't know, it? I mean, he has it in a nutshell there, Dickens, has the whole capitalist attitude, essentially. If people aren't uh, economically valuable, then they're absolutely pointless. Mm-hmm. Get rid of them. So uh, we shouldn't doubt that the Victorians were also very interested in charity. Mm. I'm saying Victorians, just remember, this is, this is 1843. Queen Victoria had only been on the throne for five years. Right. Dickens himself was, was from a pre-Victorian... Yes, it's worth remembering that, but often the, yeah. the settings for his books are actually remembered settings from pre-Victoria. Uh, very much so, and yeah. also from, from his literary predecessors. Mm. But in exactly the period that Dickens was writing, there were great big bursts of Victorian philanthropy around Christmas. Mm. But one of the very characteristic things were banquets for the poor where they would take a huge space, I mean a massive space, and fill it with the poor. And and the lords and ladies and uh, uh, plutocrats would go around and serve them. But it was a bit performative, Mm. as you might say. It made them feel very good, you know. (laughs) Whereas Dickens was deeply uninterested in that. What Mm. Dickens was interested in, in a phrase which unfortunately uh, became rather tarnished over the years, was self-help. He believed that you had to make your own fate mm-hmm. because he'd made his, of course. Right. That's why he, in the end, was not a Democrat. Mm-hmm. He, he thought that Parliament was completely inadequate, <laughs> that, it, that it was corrupt, deeply, deeply corrupt, as it certainly was uh, in his day and um, <laughs> what he had to say about the present time. But it certainly wasn't uh, geared towards the sense of the whole body of society. So the, the book opens on Christmas Eve and eventually Scrooge agrees to close up his shop and allows Bob Cratchit, uh, his clerk, to leave. So let's leave like them and head out into Cornhill again. OK. So Bob Cratchit comes out onto Cornhill and um, there's that lovely passage where it says, with the long ends of his white comforter dangling below his waist, 
for he boasted no greatcoat. He went down a slide on Cornhill at the end of a lane of boys 20 times in honour of its being Christmas Eve and then ran home to Camden Town as hard as he could pelt to play at Blind Man's Buff. So we can pick, I mean, it's a bit less steep than maybe it was in the... Uh, 19th yeah, century, but you can imagine an ice, yeah. an icy slide, and uh, I mean, it is called Corn Hill, so right. it must at some point have been a hill. Yeah, well, it was one of the one of the two hills that Roman Londinium was yeah, yeah. built on, wasn't it? But, Simon, the really distinctive thing about the City of London and, and this area of it, particularly, is how you get these big, busy thoroughfares, and then you can step off them into these narrow, tiny little, yes, yes. essentially medieval alleys and yes. courtyards. And these alleys and courtyards are many of them name-checked in uh, the Elizabethan city comedies. And then when it became the financial centre, of course the, the whole uh, layout of the city changed. It became much grander. Yes. About the 19th century when so many of these buildings are built, it's kind of like a, a huge um, memorial to capitalism. Right. You know, it's a sort of uh, temples of capitalism. And, and all these wonderful churches, many of which were around in, in Shakespeare's time and Johnson's time and so on, sort of mashed in with them. It's a real palimpsest, isn't it? But these kind of yeah. huge skyscrapers right next to medieval well, churches. Exactly. And... But there's a definite atmosphere about the city. And I don't think Dickens had any great fondness for the city mm. of London mm. as such. And, it, you know, setting this novel so specifically here in the yeah, heart yeah. of London, it feels like that's one of the real achievements in this book, is yeah. taking the spirit of this sort of country, medievalized, uh, rural Christmas and setting it right here in a busy urban setting. Yeah, and yeah. particularly, as you say, with the, you know, with the urban poor. Now we're just stepping off Cornhill now into the very narrow Bull Court. Yes. Because when Scrooge finally leaves and locks up on Christmas Eve yes. himself, Dickens writes that uh, Scrooge took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern. <laughs> now we don't know where that is, but it could have been somewhere a little bit like this pub that we're standing outside now, Simpson's Tavern. Yes. which uh, was built in the late 18th century. So this would have been here looking very similar, I suspect, when um, Dickens knew the area. Yes. Exactly. And it's a rather closed up now, but you can, peering through this dusty window, you can almost imagine Scrooge, perhaps, uh, sitting behind these windows. OK, let's carry on, and we'll uh, see if we can find Scrooge's lodgings. He lived in chambers which had once belonged to his deceased partner. They were a gloomy suite of rooms in a lowering pile of building up a yard where it had so little business to be that one could scarcely help fancying it must have run there when it was a young house, playing at hide-and-seek with other houses and have forgotten the way out again. So we've just stepped off Philpot Lane into Brabant Court and we're standing in front of a five-storey uh, what would you say, Simon, possibly late 18th century, early 19th century house, which could be, it could stand in for Marley's lodgings. Sadly, it doesn't, it's got a very ornate door front, uh, but sadly there's no great knocker 
there. Um, I, I've heard that the, the, you know, that famous scene with Marley's face appearing in the door knocker yeah. was inspired by a specific door knocker on Craven Street off the Strand, which no. sadly doesn't exist anymore. But um, we can perhaps imagine it here. That's such a f- famous scene from the novel, isn't it, where the yes. knocker becomes Jacob Marley's face, his old business partner, who yes. died seven years ago on Christmas Eve, that very night. Yes. And it reminds us that this is a ghost story, as it announces in, in the title. Yeah. And Simon, I wonder, how, does, how would you say that Dickens presents this book as a ghost story? He declares his hand right with the very first line of the book, which is, Marley was dead. So we're talking about something yeah. to begin untoward. With, yeah, that's such a good line, isn't it? Because it's, it's kind of, let's begin by saying he's dead, yeah. but also he's dead to begin with. Yeah, Afterwards, yeah. maybe he comes yeah, back from he the is, dead. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> well, he, ha- he says an interesting thing, doesn't he? He's, he calls this book a ghostly little book, and he yes. says he hopes that it will raise the ghost of an idea yeah. and that this book will haunt your house. So he's, yes. the book itself is a kind of almost like a little ghostly presence, yes, and he, yes. as a narrator, there's a moment where Marley says to... Scrooge, that for the last seven years, he's often been sitting next to him as a ghostly, invisible presence. Yeah, 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 yeah. But Dickens, as a narrator, is also kind of there as a presence with the reader, well, isn't he? He says that he, the ghost was as close to Scrooge as I am to you. Right. And yet, reader. as I am to you, as I am standing in the spirit at your elbow. So, yes. so he's doing something really interesting here, isn't he? That he, as a narrator, he is almost haunting you, the reader, as you read this book. Well, a lot of uh, ghost story writers do that. They make you question reality. M.R. James does that all the time. Says you don't quite know. There's something uh, amiss. You you, Uh you, you sense that. He loved ghost stories. Of course, there's a famous one in Pickwick Papers. Right, a kind of model for A wonderful, wonderful story about Gabriel... Grubb, yeah. uh, Gabriel Grubb, the sexton. Grubb, the sexton, yes. Uh, this is an excellent, a really, really good and scary story. And it is, as you say, uh, in, in a way, a prototype for the story. that mm, Because he, he, he's a misanthrope, isn't he? Yeah, and he, exactly. He gets kind of taught the error of his ways. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But it, so talking about the ghost of Jacob Marley, I, I, the other thing I think Dickens does so well is he has that great line in Oliver Twist about how in the theatre tragedy and comedy are alternated like the layers of red and white in a side of streaky bacon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and in a way, that is almost a description of Dickens' own method, yes, isn't it? Totally. Because with someone like Marley's ghost, there are often very amusing <laughs> moments when he's being described. There's a moment where he says his body was transparent so that Scrooge, observing him and looking through his waistcoat, could see the two buttons on his coat behind. Yeah, 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 very yeah sort of funny yes, description, yes, yes. but then at the same time... And he says that he'd often heard it said yeah. uh, that Molly had no bowels, but he'd never until <laughs> he'd never now... believed it till now. <laughs> yes. believed it. Um, but then at the same time, he describes that, you know, this, this ghost as having a chilling influence with its death-cold yeah, eyes. Yeah. It, the voice disturbs the very marrow in his bones. It's, it's really terrifying descriptions as well. Yes, and then, but then he's in and out of that as well, because Scrooge uh, says... Uh, all that stuff about uh, you might be a bit of beef. Right, right, yes. Beef more of a responsible gravy than my, a gravy about exactly, you. Yes. Of course, later, when the novels get darker, he's less inclined to mm. do the streaky bacon <laughs> thing. I, I wonder if, for Dickens, an absolutely essential part of Christmas was being scared. <laughs> because there's a piece he writes later in, in life, in 1850. It's a piece called A Christmas Tree for yes. Household Words. 
And the very earliest Christmases he remembers, he, he recalls the toys that he was given. And it's just a list of terrifying sounding toys. He says, yeah. there's that infernal snuff box out of which there sprang a demoniacal counsellor. There's a frog with cobbler's wax on his tail that's horrible. A larger cardboard man with a sinister expression. And then a dreadful mask. I mean, he says, why was I so frightened that the sight of that mask is an era in my life? And so I wonder from the very beginning if, if there's a sort of two sides to Christmas. There's a kind of warmth, family, fireside yes, Christmas. Well. And then this cold, dark, ghostly, yes, terrifying. Well. Um, but uh, isn't it also true that children love to be frightened? Right. Because of, you know, they're, they're, they'll be comforted afterwards. So there is always a child self in Dickens and also of, of the fun of parties because John Dickens was such a wonderfully convivial man and, 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 and as we know he used to take Dickens to the local pub and put him up on the table yes. and have him sing songs and uh, uh, tell stories and so on and uh, that I think is one of the things that is altogether wonderful about Christmas Carol is this constant shifting of tones mm. which Dickens handles mm. in such masterly fashion Famously, Marley announces that there were three spirits uh, visiting Dickens. There's a slight confusion over the time frame. He says over the next three nights, and then yes. it turns out to all happen on Christmas night. But the first ghost to appear is the ghost of Christmas past. And Simon, might you read out the description that Dickens has of this first yes. spirit? It was a strange figure. Like a child, yet not so like a child as like an old man. Its hair, which hung about its neck and down its back, was white, as if with age. And yet the face had not a wrinkle in it, and the tenderest bloom was on the skin. The arms were very long and muscular. <laughs> it's a very strange description. Very it, strange. It's really yeah. hard, and, and it's defeated anybody who's ever attempted to create that spirit. I mean, no actor can play what yeah. Dickens yeah. describes, but even cartoons can't quite yeah. manage it because it's constantly... Constantly in flux, yeah. yeah. And those mus long muscular arms, that's really yeah. kind of scary detail, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> but it strikes me that this is one of the other great achievements of A Christmas Carol, is it's not any one type of ghost story. There's lots of different types yeah. of ghosts yeah, in yeah, this yeah, book. Yeah. Well, the, it, 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 it is miraculous, even in Dickens's own output, in the fluidity of it and the mm. flexibility of mm. it. Because it's a ghost story and because he can swoop him from past to present to future, it's a magical performance, it basically. It really is. It's, it's the work of a conjurer. And, of course, Dickens was a wonderful conjurer. He took it terribly seriously. He was the number one subscriber to the magic shop in Bloomsbury. <laughs> wow. And he had all the, all the documents, you know, all the, all the adverts for new acts, and he masked them, and he, if he went to see another magician, he just sat and puzzled out how he'd managed to do it. And the shows were spectacular. It, it must have been wonderful for the children, but also, in a way, a bit daunting. Yes, because yes. Because it was so overwhelming. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, it is amazing thinking of him practising conjuring tricks. Oh, uh, in, and just as he rehearsed the, the readings. Right. Hours and hours and hours. He did, uh, apparently when he did Bill Sykes and Nancy, yeah. he um, really did um, rehearse them a minimum of 20 hours of rehearsal before he even considered putting it into the wow. repertory. Wow. He never did anything by halves, ever. Such a remarkable man. 
Well, when the ghost of Christmas past appears, he puts a hand on Scrooge's heart. Yes. I say he, it's not really a... It, yes. Yeah, it. And they uh, immediately, the room dissolves and they emerge out into the world. So let's head out of Brabant Court and talk about some of the places they visit together. We're going to cross over and go up these steps. He rose, but finding that the spirit made towards the window clasped its robe in supplication. I am immortal, Scrooge remonstrated, liable to fall. There but a touch of my hand, there, said the spirit, laying it upon his heart. And you shall be upheld in more than this. As the words were spoken, they passed through the wall and stood upon an open country road, with fields on either hand. The city had entirely vanished. So one of the first locations that the ghost of Christmas past takes Scrooge to revisit is the school that he spent time in as a child, yeah. which is this rather grand-sounding red-brick mansion that's falling into slight disrepair. Yeah. And we see Scrooge as a child studying there in the holidays when the other children have gone home. Yeah. And it, you can see the transformation of Scrooge starting to happen even, even in this early in, his, in the book where this boy that he sees reminds him of that boy he chased away with a ruler earlier in, um, yes, yes. on Christmas Eve. And that's funny. that strikes me as one of the slightly sad, loose ends of the novel, that there's, there's lots of, that's wrapped up at the end, and, and yeah. Scrooge puts things right. But I always think that boy, he never, we don't know if he ever tracks him down and <laughs> does right by him. Well, yes, it's, it's true. I tell you what is sort of a little bit absent from the book is exploration of why Scrooge became the way he was. Yes, I good mean, point. he was an unhappy child at school, Scrooge was, but father became much kinder and Fan says they're going back home and they're going to have the most wonderful Christmas ever. And then, then we see him with Mr Fezziwig. Well, one of the most... One of the best scenes in the book, isn't it? This wonderful Christmas party. In fact, why don't we talk about that here? Yes, okay. We're just standing in front of an old tiled Art Nouveau yes. warehouse front, and it's called Bolton House, and you can see it was built in 1907. So a bit later than we're talking about, and it's, yeah, it's rather stunning, actually, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, maybe this is a good place to talk about that wonderful scene at the Fezziwig's yeah. Christmas party. Because this is when Scrooge has grown up a bit. He's a, he's a young apprentice in a city, Dickens says. So this might not be London, but we could imagine it on yes. a street rather than like the one we're standing on now. And it's this just joyous party where they push all the furniture back and a fiddler comes in and plays the music and, and it's full of life and fun dancing, and dancing. And, and Scrooge himself... Um, kind of immediately goes back to how he was at the time. He says his heart and soul were in the scene and with his former self. He corroborated everything, remembered everything, enjoyed everything, and underwent the strangest agitation. And it is amazing, isn't it, how when you do visit, you know, we can't travel back in time, but when we visit a location we haven't been in for a long time, you do kind of 
you yeah. remember exactly how you felt when you were there. Absolutely, before. but but the, it is a puzzle as to why he's learned these wonderful lessons from Fezziwig mm. about kindness mm. to your employees, about living for you know sake of it, uh, uh, about eating and drinking and indulging and warmth and and human relations, mm. friendship, and all the rest of it, and we never quite get an explanation for why the next time we mm. see Scrooge really he's breaking up with his girlfriend yes. because he's become obsessed by money. You're right. That is a bit of a mystery and it's, <clears throat> and it's, and it's clearly heartbreaking for Scrooge himself because at the end of that scene he, you know, he turns to the spirit and says, why do you torture me yeah, yeah, seeing yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, how interesting. We don't really know. But yes, it's, um, it's at that point where he, you know, this torture, when he sees himself turning into the man we meet at the beginning of the yeah. novel. That's when the torture really reaches its peak and, and he, he turns to the spirit and he says, seeing um, that the spirit looked at him with a face in which in some strange way there were fragments of all the faces it had shown him. Yeah. He wrestles with it. And that's such a strange image, isn't it? This sort of yeah. flickering face of all these characters that yeah. we've just met. Yeah. It's, um, it strikes me that The Ghost of Christmas Past is almost like an embodiment of one's memories. And remember that, that Scrooge has blocked all that out. Right. Uh, uh, like another character in another Christmas story, um, Redlaw in uh, Hunted Man, uh, um, who has decided, because he has some unhappy memories, that he'll block out uh -huh. all memory. And then he finds himself absolutely collapsing mm -hmm. uh, with mm -hmm. anxiety and dread because you must engage with your past. You must mm -hmm. engage. But Dickens himself put it off for a long time. It wasn't really until he wrote David Copperfield that he engaged head-on with what he'd gone through, uh, uh, the, the sort of horror of it, but also the splendor of it in a way. His father kind of re reincarnated as Mr. McCorber. Right. Then Dickens literally had a nervous breakdown while he was writing those passages. He was on the Isle of Wight and he oh, literally wept and wept and wept days on end. How interesting. And so in this earlier book, he's almost sort of rehearsing that, yes. what that process would involve, kind of revisiting and your And it's past. good you, you say this earlier book. He was 31 when he wrote this. Wow. 31. And he's, and, and he's writing like an absolute master. Yeah. And um, of course it is the book that I believe established Dickens finally in his enormous public's estimation as the tribune of the people. Right. He spoke for yes. England. And it is the point where he, he sort of stepped away from his contemporaries in terms of his relationship mm. to the British people and indeed to a worldwide to readership. Yes, like that. right. You know, because uh, the Pickwick Papers was uh, translated into Russian <laughs> two years after it came out in England. Wow. I mean, <laughs> That's it, extraordinary, He was it? the first global superstar. Yeah. He yeah. really was. So, after this, this kind of magic lantern show of memories yeah. Scrooge wrestles with the spirit and it dissolves into his bed curtains and he's back in his room and it's as if nothing has changed from when he was there before but now he's waiting of course for the second spirit that Marley promised him so let's head on into the city uh, yeah. to meet the second spirit right Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove from every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened. The crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe and ivy reflected back the light, as if so many little mirrors had been scattered there. And such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney, as that dull petrification of a hearth had never known in Scrooge's time, or Marley's, or for many and many a winter season gone. Heaped up on the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, Great joints of meat, sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth cakes, and seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. So this is 1881. This arcade. This, yes, we're stepping into Leadenhall Market. Yeah. And yes, there's this late Victorian ironwork and yeah. just a really stunning Gorgeous. market, isn't it? With gold and red details. Wonderful columns and the, all, all the dragons of the city of London. <laughs> yes. Very animated. Look, one's tongue's almost in your ear, isn't it? <laughs> yes, right. Look up there. I mean, Leadenhall Market is. It's a really old location for a market. It, it, we're standing in the middle of what was the Roman Forum. So um, there's been a market here for many centuries, but there was a key medieval market here. And in Dickens's time, this was a meat and poultry market. So yeah. I, you know, at the end of the Christmas Carol, when Scrooge sends the boy to get the prized turkey oh, at the yes, poultry, yes, I think yes. it would almost certainly have been <coughs> in Leadenhall Market right, where we're standing right, right, now. Right. Today, it, instead of sort of old grocers and, and 
poulterers and, yeah. and butchers now. We've got Pizza, Pizza Express, Express <laughs> uh, some rather upmarket pen shops, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. clothes shops and so on. But there's definitely, they've kept the spirit of a, yeah, yeah, of a yeah, Victorian yeah. market. And Simon, I thought this, this old food market was a good place to talk about the second of the spirits who greets yes. Scrooge. His, his appearance is rather brilliant, isn't it? Because Scrooge um, is kind of steeled for something to appear. Yes. And uh, Dickens has that great line where he says, nothing between a baby and a rhinoceros would have astonished him yes. very much. Yes. But then nothing happens, which is almost the scariest of yes, all. And, yes, and Scrooge yes. is sitting there waiting. And then he realizes that there's a light on somewhere out in his rooms outside. Yeah. And he, he steps out and, and, of course, stumbles into what's normally his sitting room, yes. but has been transformed into this kind of mountain of food and and greenery, and there's a jolly giant, glorious to see, holding a glowing torch, holding it up high to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping round the door. And uh, he's a wonderful character, isn't he? The he's fantastic, uh, and uh, uh, very unexpected, because he's sort of a pagan figure. Mm. And he's quite scantily dressed. Right, yes, his, his chest is bare yeah, with his exactly, great, uh, his robe. great bare feet and, and uh, he's got tresses tumbling down, long, long hair over his shoulders and uh, one of the many interesting things about A Christmas Carol is how scantily Christianity features in it. Mm. There are references uh, with Tiny Tim when he goes to church yes. and hopes that they'll all re remember the Saviour and there are a couple of just Fred mentions a, it in passing, doesn't Oblique yeah. mentions, but basically it's not featured uh, uh, at <sighs> all. And uh, this carnival sense mm. of, of this great pagan feast against the encroaching dark mm. with the blazing fire, which yes. is what we have in this yes, scene. right. And... Uh, one of the Dickens' catalogues of, you know, uh, mouth-watering things of... of Listening joints. European Union food mountain, which <laughs> I mean, all this wonderful, wonderful food to be consumed and obviously with joy and happiness and so on. And then you get in, into the streets, and then you see uh, a sort of bourgeois London, busy, bustling shoppers, just exactly like. Oxford Street, you know, yeah. or, or Knightsbridge today. And this is where, you know, the transformation of Scrooge is really starting to happen. You know, Dickens writes, he was not the dogged Scrooge he had been, and though the spirit's eyes were clear and kind, he did not like to meet them. Yeah. And I wondered, um, Simon, do you think one of the secrets of why this story is so endures so well is that in many ways it is a fable in that it's not only a wonderful story, it's also intended to change us as readers. It's a parable, uh -huh. as you might say. Mm. And uh, what's absolutely fantastic about it is that, I mean, it's obviously a story of redemption. Mm. So he, he paints the most hideous picture of a human being you could possibly imagine, someone who has no care for his fellow human beings, takes no pleasure in anything at all. And he says, can such a man be redeemed? Mm. And the answer is, he can. But the important thing for Dickens is, because he's not sentimental in that way, he is in many ways, but not in that way, what he's saying is, he can now become a useful member of society. Mm. That's what 
that's the real radical transformation of Scrooge. Not that he becomes nice, but that he actually starts spreading his money around, right. looking after other people, becomes a, a second father to Tiny Tim, right. this crippled boy. And there's a, a little echo in there because, of course, Fan, Dickens's sister, Frances, who had a, a child who was disabled, and um, he died very young. And Dickens wrote an extraordinary letter, not an uncompassionate letter, but it's still a bit chilly saying it's better it's better he should die what does the future hold for him nothing at all he's been surrounded by love all his life and now he's gone to a better place don't mourn him at all interesting very very i mean so there's mm, tiny dip you know yes right absolutely the figure of uh, the little boy Much they saw, and far they went, and many homes they visited, but always with a happy end. The spirits stood beside sick beds, and they were cheerful, on foreign lands, and they were close at home, by struggling men, and they were patient in their greater hope, by poverty, and it was rich. We were talking just now, Simon, about yes. Tiny Tim, and in, in many ways the Cratchits and the, the Cratchit household is yeah. kind of one of the emotional centres of the book, and, yeah. and it's certainly what audiences and readers yeah. have picked up on as, as one of the sort of key bits of the book. And yeah. it's interesting that Dickens's friend, John Forster, rem recalled that Dickens had a surprising fondness for wandering about in poor neighbourhoods on yeah. Christmas Day, watching yeah. the dinners preparing. So yeah. he was familiar with this, this kind of household and this... Well, he'd been a, a member of that right. household right. like that. Right. I mean, in Camden Town. They weren't so poor in uh, Chatham and uh, the West Country, but, but they were in London. They were desperately poor. But the, the sketch of the Cratchits at home is such a triumph of pictorial brilliance and he manages without being heavy handed about it just to say and they had no money at all nothing uh, and, uh, and no, no Cratchit would have dreamt ever saying that it was a rather small yes, yes. Uh, you know uh, 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 all of that the, but, the pride and, and yeah um, but the most wonderful thing that he says at the end always touched me deeply is when he says uh, that there was nothing remarkable about any of these people they were not good looking yeah. they were not well dressed but they were happy with one another yeah. you know, they, and it's just a, a exquisite little celebration of, of what family life can be yes. of, of making something out of nothing and all of that, which at the same time is not at all patronising and not at all suggestive that uh, they should be content with their lot. Mm. Mm. He doesn't feel that no, at, it's all. Not at all. On the contrary, yes. but on the other hand, look for what is true and good in your life. And it's just... That, too, is almost a little parable, the whole story. Completely. I mean, the other great location that the Ghost of Christmas Present takes him to is his own nephew Fred's Christmas party. Yeah. And I wonder, Simon, it always strikes me that this is partly a self-portrait of Dickens' own sort of Christmas celebrations. Yeah. There's a wonderful letter that Dickens writes to his friend Forster at Christmas 1843, so just after having written... Um, 
Christmas Carol, where he describes such dining, such dancing, such conjurings, such blind man's buffing, such theatre going, such kissings out of old years and kissing in of new ones never took place in these parts before. And you really get a sense of the exuberance yeah. of his own Christmas celebrations oh, there. Absolutely. He was, must have been one of the greatest hosts ever. And, uh, of course, as he got older, he became less joyous, uh, uh, but could always whip it up. You Find know. the energy and, somewhere. And right at the end of his life, one of his writers, George Sala, um, saw him in the street, and Dickens was kind of like this wraith. Mm. He was nearly uh, a couple of months before he died, 58, you know, just looked 88, just walking along the street like a, like a, like a revenant. Mm. And... Uh, then uh, Sala going up to him and saying, Sir, it's um, Sala here. And Dickens goes, throwing all that off wow, and just yes. tempests of, of, of fun and laughter and joy. It always strikes me when you see photographs of him later in his life and he looks so craggy and, yeah. and old, but he was only 58 and when he died. And it, it just feels like he lived life so hard. It was just like, you know, his body just couldn't cope with it. Who could? You just yeah. look at what yeah. he's... What he does, and even just letter writing. Right. What is it? 14 volumes of, of yes, letters. Right. And that's not the lot. They keep finding more, you know. So, as you were saying earlier, Simon, they, they visit the Cratchits, they visit Fred, his nephew, but they also, Scrooge and the Ghost of Christmas Present, go on this world tour. Yes. There's an extraordinary scenes where they go down into the mines. Yeah. They soar out over the ocean and see the waves underneath yeah. them. They visit lighthouses and ships and... And then more generally, they seem to travel further off into the world and, and yeah. people who are far, far away in the world think back to their yeah. home in England and so on. But eventually, they come to a location which is almost different to anywhere else in the book. It's just an open place, is what Dickens says. Yeah. And Michael Slater points out that in the illustration to this scene in the novel, the background is not... London, but of grim, kind of workhouse-like buildings. It's a kind of nondescript, open industrial space. And these terrible, symbolic children are revealed underneath the cloak that has been wrapped round the yeah. Ghost of Christmas Present. And what, Simon, what is the significance of these, this boy and this girl? Well, it's a terrifying passage, actually, because uh, it's when the spirit of Christmas present is fading mm -hmm. and he ages before Scrooge's eyes. And then Scrooge sees emerging from its folds a claw-like hand, a claw. And uh, uh, he says to the spirit, what is, what is that? And, and the spirit opens out his garments and these two children feral children mm. a girl and a boy stand there and the, the, the girl is called want and the boy is called ignorance uh, and they have these letters on their, on their brow and Scrooge says whose children are these are they your children and the spirit says they are mankind's and this is when the whole origins of the story finally lands, uh -huh. which is that what is done to children in the name of capital and progress is will lead to the destruction of the world. And 
you know, it's hard to disagree with Dickens in his analysis, uh, as it could so well apply to today. Ignorance and want between them, those two things, are responsible for almost everything that is aglay in our world and has no sense improved since Dickens's time. And in your biography, you say the starting point of A Christmas Carol is not Tiny Tim, it's not yeah. Scrooge, it's ignorance and want. Yeah. And, and where did that starting point come from? That came from um, Dickens receiving from a friend of his, a clergyman called Smith, a copy of the parliamentary report on the employment of children in factories and mines. Mm -hmm. And it shocked Victorian Britain to discover that children were wasting away in the mines and in factories just to produce, you know, the consumables of the Victorian era. Th these were called the hungry forties. Right. This was a time of great impoverishment around the country as, you know, the industrial world was really getting into its stride and the imperial world mm. was revving mm. up and so on. Uh, there was a period of great, great uh, famine and then there, there were... You know, action was taken by Parliament and so on. He says on reading that report he was perfectly stricken down yeah. by it and his first reaction was to consider writing a pamphlet which yeah. he was going to call An Appeal to the People of England yeah. on behalf of the poor man's child. Yes, yes. But quickly he realised actually it would be much more effective to yeah. write a story that yes. captures people's imagination. Which he described as striking a hammer blow. Yes. This was this, he, was, he, was, he was in a state of towering anger as he mm. conceived it. But this is the miracles of art, is that he translated that impulse into something which was playful, entertaining, imaginative, funny, but nonetheless... Mm does strike a hammer So the ghost of Christmas present disappears at about this moment, and then Scrooge sees this figure approaching. And Simon, I wonder, if, would you mind reading this yeah, sure. description? The phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached. When it came near him, Scrooge bent down upon his knee, for in the very air through which the spirit moved, it seemed to scatter gloom and misery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. But for this it would have been difficult to detach its figure from the night and separate it from the darkness by which it was surrounded. Wonderful. It is such a terrifying description. Isn't scary. It? Then the book really gets scary. cross over this section. There they were, in the heart of it, on change amongst the merchants, who hurried up and down and chinked the money in their pockets and conversed in groups and looked at their watches and trifled thoughtfully with their great gold seals and so forth, as Scrooge had seen them often. We've just stepped into the Royal Exchange, which is one of the great landmarks of the city of London. The foundation of the Royal Exchange goes back to the 16th century when Sir Thomas Gresham founded an open uh, courtyard for merchants to come and do their business. And it grew and grew over the years of various different uh, buildings. 
this building was actually uh, being built at the time that Dickens was writing A Christmas Carol. And it was opened later the following year on, in October 1844. But in the very first paragraph of A Christmas Carol, Dickens points us to the Royal Exchange when he says Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. And so this was the centre of Scrooge's business world. This is where merchants would come to meet. Simon, we're never actually quite clear what Scrooge does, do we? I mean, it's some yeah. form of business. It's fascinating, um, exactly. Uh, I mean, he sort of seems to be dealing with money in pure form. Mm. Some form of credit mm, seems mm, to be what mm-hmm. it's about. Today, it's still a spectacular building, but it's been completely transformed into a kind of, uh, well, still a kind of temple to capitalism, <laughs> a kind of shishi collection of shops. There's a Fortnum and Mason champagne bar in the center of this hushed space. There's a Tiffany jewelry store to one side. It's a very high-end shopping destination. And this is one of the locations that the third spirit brings uh, Scrooge when he starts to show him these grotesque and terrifying visions. Scrooge arrives in this location and he, and he looks around. He, he, he looks for his own self in the future. But he says another man stood in his accustomed corner, although the clock pointed to his usual time of day for being there. And he saw no likeness of himself among the multitudes that poured in through the porch. And then while they're here, the spirit leads him over to this little knot of businessmen. And they're such grotesque characters, these men, aren't they, Simon? There's there's a great fat man with a monstrous chin a red-faced gentleman with a pendulous excrescence on the end of his nose, (laughs) a third taking a vast quantity of snuff out of a very large snuff box. But Scrooge knows these men, and they're talking about someone who's died recently. So we can picture that happening right down here on the floor. It's a very modern scene, this, Mm. of three brokers just kind of engaging a bit of scuttlebutt about, you know, who's dead, who's alive... And, and up, it's a, and it's down, a source in, of fun, up. isn't it? I mean, they're joking about it. They are, of, but not in a kind way at all, no, whoever no. this man is, because that becomes the quest of the journey with the third spirit is who is he talking about? Mm. Because the, 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 the ghost keeps pointing him to, in a certain direction, and he keeps hearing about this man who has died and nobody seems to care. And then he goes into this man's house and uh, scavengers are tearing the place apart. But who is this man? Scrooge is now obsessed by this idea. Who has he being told about? Right, right. And we will we'll <laughs> we, discover who it is. Exactly. And just while we're, you know, while we're talking about that theatricality of, yeah. of the book, why do you think this story in particular has had so many adaptations on stage and screen and in other forms. I mean, you know, it, by mid-February 1844, so just two months after the publication, there were already eight productions yeah. being staged in London. It's extraordinary. It drove Dickens mad, actually, right. because, right. of course, he didn't get any money from it, right. number one. And number two, he had no control over it. So they just made it up. And in fact, quite often with Dickens's novels, which were appearing in, unlike the Christmas Carol, appearing in periodic form, um, uh, they would uh, imagine an ending which is completely different to Dickens's own right. ending of the novel. Uh, it, it, it enraged him. So that 
essential theatricality of the story is one of the crucial reasons it survived so well. The second is that in Scrooge he's created someone utterly memorable. Yes. Um, almost, you know, in the realm of folklore, again, yes. the banner headline of Scrooge is so extreme that he is almost like a figure from Scandinavian myth right. or something. Or, yes, or like a character like Frankenstein or Dracula who's sort of exactly. take, gone beyond the page and has become a... But, but it's a stroke of genius of Dickens to, to do that in a prelude mm. and then mostly he behaves mm. Mm. like a rather nasty but a but completely recognisable human being. And um, finally, of course, because it's a story of redemption and and we all want to be redeemed mm, mm. you know we all know that we haven't been as good as we should be mm. and so what dickens's huge contribution to christmas was that we always have to think at christmas of the deprived of people who yes can't have a christmas like ours absolutely and and there's that lovely line isn't there because you know it was the most popular of the public readings that he did, and yeah. I think he performed a Christmas Carol 127 times yeah, to live audiences. Yeah, I'm sure. And one of his American admirers described his reading of a Christmas Carol as Dickens's blessed Christmas gospel. Yeah. Now there is a there is an element to that, but it's something we return to because we want to hear that message again. Yeah. And again. You know, the very, very, very first public reading he ever did, which was in Birmingham, he read the whole book. Wow three and three quarter hours oh and it was so successful that he repeated it right. two days later <laughs> to equally completely packed house a churchyard here then the wretched man whose name he had now to learn lay underneath the ground it was a worthy place walled in by houses overrun by grass and weeds the growth of vegetation's death, not life, choked up with too much burying, fat with repleted appetite. A worthy place. The spirit stood among the graves and pointed down to one. Simon, almost perhaps the most terrifying vision in the book is when Scrooge is brought to a room, a dimly lit room that he can't quite work out where it, where it is, but he looks down and he recoils in terror because he's almost touching a bed, a bare, uncurtained bed, on which beneath a ragged sheet there lay something covered up, which, though it was dumb, announced itself in awful language. And suddenly he's standing next to the dead body of this man that he's been hearing yeah. talked about in these different yeah. locations. And finally, the third spirit brings him to a little churchyard, a little city churchyard enclosed by buildings, not unlike where we've just walked into now, yeah. um, the churchyard of St. Peter's on Cornhill, which today is surrounded on three sides by office buildings, but it still is sort of cramped yeah. as um, and no, we can imagine no it was. Either. And no graves anymore, that's true. Yeah. I mean, there's a wonderful description in Bleak House, isn't there, of, of one of these overflowing city graveyards just crammed full of graves. And it was a real sort of public safety problem, wasn't it? In the and Dickens century. sat on many committees about graveyards. 
Uh, one of the astonishing things about Dickens is that he found time. <laughs> right. After writing all these novels, uh, editing magazines and indeed a, a, a national newspaper at one point, that he still managed to sit. This is, Dickens is a totally practical campaigner. You know, he didn't just write eloquently about these things. He sat on committees. <laughs> There's nothing more devastatingly grueling than sitting on a committee of, 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 of all sorts, uh, sewage committees. I mean, it, it wasn't glamorous at all. But, uh, but the graveyard one was, it was an uh, oh, interesting place. So he would have known locations like this churchyard very well. Yep. And in the final vision that the third spirit shows him, he's taken to a churchyard like this, and this one hand, the one visible bit of this spirit, points at a certain grave. And at this point, we as readers, and we think Scrooge as well, knows what is going to be written on that grave. And of course, it's his own name. He is the man who has died that all these people have been talking about. And Dickens writes, he advanced towards its trembling. The phantom was exactly as it had been, but he dreaded that he saw new meaning in its solemn shape. This, I th for me, this is a clue as to the nature of this third spirit. I mean, it's interesting that the third spirit never names himself. Doesn't speak. Doesn't speak at all. Scrooge says to him, are you the ghost of Christmas yet to come, which he acknowledges. But in some ways, it's, he's more specific than that, I think. He is the ghost of Scrooge's death, like he's showing specifically visions of what will happen when Scrooge mm. dies. Mm. And that is maybe why he is such a terrifying vision, this, this heap of black, as Dickens calls him, because maybe he is like a personification of death approaching mm. Scrooge. Mm. And it's here in the, in the churchyard that Scrooge goes down on his knees of his spirit and says, I will honour Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. Oh, tell me, if I do this, may I sponge away the writing on this stone? Yeah. And it's a, it's a sort of abject image. And, and of course, no one can sponge away that writing eventually. We're all going to die at some point. But Scrooge's hope is that he will be able to make enough change in his life before it comes to death. Yeah. This is, the, in a way, another of the all-important messages of Dickens about Christmas is, he says... I will keep it all the year mm. round. Mm. So what Dickens says is, unlike those nice charitable people who threw banquets for the poor on Christmas Day, uh, he says, no, it's not just on Christmas Day. If, you, if we can manage this on Christmas Day, why can't we manage it all the rest of the year? We right. are all fellow passengers to the grave. This is Dickens' this supreme vision of human society is of a human pyramid. Mm. Everybody in the human pyramid depends on everybody else. And you may be more glamorous to be on top of it, and you may have to work harder to be at the bottom of it, but you, you're indispensable. Mm -hmm. Each of you, we're all indispensable to each other. And that's why it's, it's not just a simplistic message about, you know, um, let's all be nice to each other at Christmas. It's, it's a, a message about the whole way society works. Mm -hmm. Well, Simon, let's go on to our final location for today to talk about the legacy of A Christmas Carol. Yes. I don't know what to do, cried Scrooge, laughing and crying in the same breath and making a perfect laocoon of himself with his stockings. I am as light as a feather. I am as happy as an angel. 
I am as merry as a schoolboy. I am as giddy as a drunken man. A merry Christmas to everybody. A happy new year to all the world. Well, Simon, for our final location, we've come into the George and Vulture pub, which is in one of these tiny little alleyways off Cornhill. And this is a fascinating pub because it's said that Dickens himself stayed here on one occasion. And of course, the George and Vulture is a key location in the Pickwick Papers, his first great success, his first great novel. Um, and this felt like, you know, perhaps a good place for us to finish and talk about the, the finale of, of A Christmas Carol, the sort of the happy ending. Yeah. Um, because Scrooge, of course, emerges from this horrific um, sequence of visions with the third spirit and discovers that he hasn't missed Christmas. It's still Christmas morning. And it's almost like he's been given that opportunity to put things right on this day and then for every day going forward. And his wonderful descriptions of him kind of getting dressed, kind of jumping, dancing around the room. Um, he laughs, and this is, uh, yeah. it's, there's been a description earlier of how wonderful his nephew Fred's laugh is, and yeah. now we see where he gets it from because Scrooge has a wonderful laugh as yes. well, even though it hasn't been coming out for a while. And I wondered, you know, Simon, what is it that is the secret of the Christmas Carol, do you think? Why is it that we're drawn to it again and again? Why have you been so strongly drawn to it in your life, do you think? What is particularly gratifying about it is it, it's wonderful to see somebody change. Yes. It's, it's a story of transformation, and, and I, I think we all would like to transform in one way or another. And actually, it's what Scrooge undergoes is something not dissimilar to a, a religious conversion. Mm. It's like he has a road to Damascus. Mm. And I've always been of the opinion that what a Christmas Carol really is, is Scrooge's self-therapy. That Scrooge's deep inner psyche knows that it's impossible to live the way he does, with negativity and hatred and dryness. And his own psyche rebels and gives him this greed. How it shatters into these yeah. spirit. Exactly. Ah, interesting, yeah. And so it's a successful analysis, as it were, at the end. He emerges as someone who's confronted his demons, looked at what he's done with his life, understood where he should have done otherwise, and um, it emerges as an entirely positive mm. human being. Mm. And in a position, happily, to do a great deal of good. That's certainly my interpretation, mm. shall we say, of the Christmas Carol. Well, Simon, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a, a real privilege to walk around London with you and discuss Dickens and a Christmas Carol. Thank, thank you, you so very much. Many thanks to Simon Callow, the Royal Exchange, the George and Vulture, to Penguin Audiobooks for the clips of Theo Ogundipe reading from A Christmas Carol, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
Now, when Dickens died in 1870, the critic Theodore Watts Dunton overheard a London barrow girl exclaiming, Dickens dead? Then will Father Christmas die too? He believed that that girl represented thousands and thousands of the London populace who never read a line of Dickens, but who were nevertheless familiar with his name, and who looked upon him as the spirit of Christmas incarnate, as being, in a word, Father Christmas himself. And now I'll leave you with the words of Tiny Tim. It was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, every one. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.